0: The diabetes device market, it's on its way to a $35 billion valuation by 2024. That's why it's no surprise that the first artificial pancreas system was made available to patients by… another patient? Hello and welcome to Data Point, the podcast where we talk about all the ways data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and I'm privileged to have on the show today Dana Lewis as our guest. Uh, Dana is the creator of the Do-It-Yourself Pancreas System. She's a founder of an open-source artificial pancreas system movement called OpenAPS, and she's a passionate advocate of patient-centered, driven, and designed research. But more than all that, Dana is a colleague and a friend. Uh, But long before we had an opportunity to work together at W2O Group, we actually met back around 2008. And for those of you who have worked in healthcare for very long, you're probably familiar uh, with the healthcare tweet chat uh, and the hashtag HCSM for healthcare social media. What you may not know is that Dana Lewis actually started that tweet chat when she was still in college uh, a long time ago, and that is actually how we met each other, uh, but really have been friends ever since. Dana has, since we, uh, since we parted ways uh, at W2O, has gone on to do some pretty incredible things. She has won awards uh, such as the Best Use of Intel Edison, she was named as one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business uh, and has also won Red Hat's Women in Open Source Community Award. She's also done uh, lots of speaking uh, in some pretty fascinating places. She has spoken at O'Reilly's uh, OSCON Conference for Open Source and Software Development. She has addressed European Parliament. Uh, and She was also a speaker at the White House Frontiers Conference. Uh, so Needless to say, Dana is a person of striking capability, uh, singular ability, uh, and someone who has done incredible things to advance the cause of patients uh, in, as a part of the healthcare system. Uh, and I'm really eager to share with you the conversation that Dana and I had. So without further ado, Dana Lewis, hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Dana Lewis, my old friend, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me today.
0: Outstanding. Well, it's great to be back in touch with you, and I've been excited about um, having this discussion for the podcast for a long time. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, you and I have worked together uh, a little bit off and on over the past, but have known each other for almost 10 years now, actually probably more than 10 years now, if you can believe it. Um, But the work that you have been doing uh, through the course of that ten years, has been pretty remarkable, um, and I wanted to see if, for the listeners' benefit, you could just sketch in a little bit of background, uh, for how you happen to be in the place you are today. How do you, uh, how do you give the the sort of the career summary for Dana to this stage?
1: Sure. Well, it starts with how we met, which was via Twitter. So back in my undergraduate days in college, I started the first healthcare Twitter chat, hashtag HCSM, moderated that for many years, met you, met many others, including my first boss, who brought me out to Seattle to work for a nonprofit health organization doing digital health communications. And as my traditional career, as I call it now, progressed, I started doing more things related to my type 1 diabetes, uh, namely because I was frustrated with the devices I had to help manage diabetes. I wasn't able to hear the alarms on my continuous glucose monitor and that made it so that I was afraid to go to sleep. And I also couldn't get the data off in real time. So especially over the last five years, I started doing what we call DIY, or do-it-yourself diabetes, first trying to tackle that original problem of a louder alarm with my CGM. Um, and we did that by getting the data off the device using open source code. And once we did that, we made a louder alarm. We turned it into a smart predictive alarm that would actually tell me what to do in the future. Within a year, we added additional hardware that would also talk to my insulin pump and ended up making a Closed loop artificial pancreas system that would automate my insulin delivery, and that whole system and idea we interned open sourced it as well, and we call that Open APS, the open source artificial pancreas system. And so, as a result of doing that, kind of in my spare time, in addition to my job, as I worked with you. Um, started doing that more and more researching into all these cool things we could do with this really, really rich diabetes data. And that really leads me to where I am today, which is I kind of left the traditional communication roles with healthcare organizations. And I'm spending more of my time doing both DIY diabetes in terms of development, but also research and data science.
0: Wow. And you've mentioned actually a we in the context of open APS. Can you, are you willing to share a little bit about who the we is there?
1: Absolutely. So I've had the privilege to work with a lot of people in the open source community, but one of the most notable to me is the guy I was dating at the time I started doing all of this. He was very interested in diabetes um, and ended up becoming my co-developer and also husband, Scott Librand.
0: That is a highly strategic marriage. I congratulate you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thankfully, we fell in love, and that's why it actually happened. But yeah, it's it's pretty great to have your co-developer be somebody that you live with and, and work with. It makes for some interesting dinner conversations.
0: I can only imagine. That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things we like to do is to really help people to get to know the people we're interviewing and not just the work that they're doing. And I think that's certainly a a, a fun aspect of your story. And actually, it ties in well with the direction I wanted to take us here. You've talked before about d- diabetes being a data-driven disease. Um, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about what that means and about how it's impacted um, the, work that you're, uh, the work that you've done to date.
1: Yeah. And in particular, when I talk about it being a data-driven disease, I'm often talking primarily about type 1, which is the autoimmune version where your body no longer produces insulin. So in order to live and manage, you have to know what your blood sugar is in order to adjust your insulin dosing. And if you don't get insulin, you will die. So in manual mode, people will finger stick, get a blood sugar number, do math in their head and decide how much insulin to dose. There's also math to be done in terms of calculating the amount of insulin for food, less for exercise. Um, Things like sickness and stress and hormones and many, many things can influence what your blood sugar does and how you need to adjust your behavior and your insulin dosing. And that's why actually diabetes is really well suited to what we did with OpenAPS, which was basically take the human out of the loop and put the computer in place to be able to take all the input data from, in our case, a continuous glucose monitor and the insulin pump that was doing the insulin dosing, pull that data in and every five minutes, not only make a calculation, but do it off of a prediction of what would happen in future over time. Because I don't think most people know that insulin doesn't work instantaneously when it's injected in your body. It actually has a duration of action in your body of six or seven hours. And it ramps it up in the first 60 to 90 minutes, and then it's an exponential curve from there. And so doing that manually, kind of understanding those curves and the timing of the insulin, but then food hits in 15 minutes, and what are you going to do when you have to get in the car or you're going into an interview? Like, what happens when real life intersects with the diabetes? It can actually be really, really hard, and that's why it's so hard to live with diabetes and why... OpenAPS ends up working well for a lot of people because it really does the heavy lifting and really pays attention to every five minutes. So it doesn't matter if you make a mistake or something changes or your body does something weird as it often does, the computer is able to pick that up, make new predictions, make new calculations, make new adjustments and go from there. So diabetes, were lucky in the sense that we already had medical devices like the continuous glucose monitor, like the insulin pump that are pretty well known how they work. A lot of people have access to them, but not everybody does. But that gave us a good starting place
0: so dana you are a person with diabetes you but are you also a data scientist or a developer how how did you manage to translate sort of the the math that you have done in your head as a as a person with diabetes for you know most of your life into an algorithm that actually powers hardware
1: It was easier than you think. No, I'm not a data scientist or a traditional developer. I've ended up developing and programming and doing data science. But the first version of the algorithm that we did was basically... Like people with diabetes have an algorithm already, that math, that decision making, that if my blood sugar is this, if I need this much insulin for this much food, what do I do, taking in account all those things, that's an algorithm already. So we basically taught the computer to think like a person with diabetes, take those same inputs, make the decision and factor in the insulin timing and the curves. And actually, the reason we were able to do that is because as Scott my then boyfriend was learning about diabetes, he was asking lots of questions about like, well, why did you go low? And what could we do to prevent it? And so I was started explaining to him all the complexities, but he is a very analytical thinker. And so he wanted to like really break it down into rules, like, what can I do to help? And there wasn't a lot of things that he could do to help because I was an adult, I could do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I was teaching him made me realize that it was like teaching a computer, a program, like, That was the algorithm. Explaining it to him in plain language enabled us to then teach the computer how to do it. So when people ask us, well, what is the algorithm? Is it an MPC? Is it a PID controller? You know, exactly what model does it work on? Mm. It's not with differential equations. It's with the same straightforward math a person with diabetes does. So it's a simple heuristic algorithm modeled off the real-world decision-making a person with diabetes does. So it's not complicated. It's not rocket science. And sometimes it astonishes people when they run the simulator with the algorithm to see how well it does, it can be that simple and it can be that effective.
0: So it's kind of surprising to me that with, uh, you're saying it's simple and I think you're probably uh, uh, being a little bit modest there, but are there, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of developers or data scientists or even clinicians that have really fully grasped uh, how important it is to understand the patient's algorithm is is that correct or am i am i missing out on that
1: yes i think the challenge is until the last couple of years we really didn't have the data from the cgm and the pump displayed in a way where you could actually have meaningful insights out of it and i saw this myself when i you know was doing things i was in manual mode before i started all of this i was doing well enough, but I never really achieved the outcomes that I wanted to achieve even with as much insight as I had. But as we started developing tools and stripping away layers to visualize the data in the same place, to make predictions, we were able to really get a deeper understanding of that timing of insulin action, how the food works, what happens if you exercise. It was basically building the tools that allowed us to have those insights and just iterate and iterate and iterate. It wasn't like we solved it all at once. It was very much Mm. a step-based approach. And I think a A lot of the challenge is it's not that you know clinicians and developers aren't brilliant; they are, but they necessarily either haven't had the combination of the tools that displays the data in a meaningful way for them to learn the way we have, um, or that they just don't have the real world experience, and they're not. In the real world, they're not able to experiment the way I am with a person with diabetes. So a lot of the downsides of being kind of an untrained, unexpert approaching a lot of this stuff actually becomes a benefit in allowing us to make small tests and tweak and iterate in a way that they can't, you know, because of you know institutional and ethical requirements at their institutions.
0: That is pretty fascinating, and I actually want to pick that up when we come back from our break. We are going to take a short break here, uh, but stick around because we're going to be right back with Dana Lewis. Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. all you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint
1: Media Network.
0: All right, we are back with the Data Point Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and we're talking today with Dana Lewis. Dana, you were just talking about uh, the importance of being able to incorporate uh, the patient's experience and the patient's mental models uh, as we're as you were building the open APS system. It leads to some interesting questions now because there are some commercially available uh, systems on the market that are trying to do what you have done with OpenAPS. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the marketplace in terms of the pump versus the continuous glucose monitor? How are those hitting the market? Uh, is there a lot of flexibility there? And where do you see that market going in the future?
1: So there's one system that's commercially approved in the U.S. right now with several in the pipeline. And one common misconception, people often ask, well, if you could do this, why aren't companies doing this? Mm. And the reality is all of these companies have been working on this for decades. We were really able to come in at the right time and the right place as individuals to leverage Pumps and CGMs that weren't interoperable that we made interoperable and tied in with our algorithm. But it wasn't like companies weren't working on this all along. But you have to think that medical device companies are designing these modern devices with processes and systems that were designed for decades ago. Mm -hmm. And so their hardware design and their software design are often on similar timelines and cycles. And as a patient, I'm often frustrated by that because I think they could do faster software iterations. And so you also see products coming to market now and in the future that the first generation of them, they're going to be fairly conservative because they're, you know, first to market first of their kind. They're kind of figuring out with regulators, what's safe for an average population. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're also seeing kind of a full stack product come to market. And so, People are, for the most part, in the first generation, going to have to choose between one full stack versus the other. But there's pros and cons to different components, both the pump and the CGM and the algorithm or controller and the usability features that come along with those. So the FDA has actually laid out a vision of interoperable devices where they would approve a pump as an eye pump that would be interoperable with other interoperable components like an eye CGM or the eye controller. And that's actually what I would love to see is people being able to choose the pump body that works best for them so the physical Mm. hardware the glucose sensor the cgm that works for them and the algorithm and the accompanying remote monitoring usability tweak features whatever it is that they need to customize it to really work for them but i think we are two or three generations away from truly having those interoperable systems but i think it's going to take a little bit of a shake up in the market uh, to be able to have some of those components to be able to play with one another and not just have a full stack product brought to market but i'm excited to see that eventually come here
0: and it is it has to be encouraging to see the product coming to market at all but yes i i can imagine being able to separate it like that and really be able to customize with the different components it makes a ton of sense i guess the the question that i have is that you know over the last several years um people with diabetes have gotten used to the fact that there are cgms available that there are pumps available and that they can play together how many people with diabetes are expecting the algorithm uh, to be customizable you know do, do they consider that mental math that they do you know every five minutes or every 15 minutes you know do they do they think about that as an algorithm expect the system to be able to replicate that?
1: I'm not sure how many people think about the way they manage their diabetes as an algorithm. And I'm not sure how many people really know what to expect with a closed-loop system. I actually see both polar opposites of people who expect too much for the system in terms of expecting it to be like a cure. Like you never Mm -hmm. ever have to think again. And then people who are like... It's not you know, a bi-hormonal or a multi-hormonal cure system, so like it's not going to be good enough. And what we've found, keep in mind, I've been using a DIY closed loop now for over four full years. And so we now have in the community over a 1,000 people globally who've done DIY stuff. So we've got millions of hours of experience, and we didn't stop developing after we built our first vision, version. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned over the years is that the algorithm itself can be sophisticated enough to take away some of the routine burdens and thought processes a person with diabetes has to do. That being said, it is a learning curve, just like switching to an insulin pump is. It's a learning curve to switch to an automated system. And Mm. it's going to be different with every system, depending on what it can and cannot do and the behavioral trade-offs it allows. I think the challenge is the first generation systems, like I said, are probably going to be fairly conservative. They're kind of like what I had four years ago. And it's going to be the second or third generation of commercial systems that are going to be what I have today, where other than changing my pump site and my CGM sensor every three days, every seven or 10 days, I don't think about diabetes for the most part. I maybe click three or four buttons, but I don't have to think about it. It's like celiac to me, you know, having to eat gluten-free and find food and all that is a much bigger burden to me now than type one diabetes is. And that's just such a drastic change (laughs) after living with diabetes for 16 years that I never expected. But I think- that's that's where we'll be able to get to. But one of the things I talk a lot with clinicians and the community and regulators about is making sure that when systems come to market, they are transparent enough about what they can and cannot do and are able to tell patients that, okay, when you have a menstrual cycle or when you have the norovirus or you get the mm-hmm. flu or you change activity patterns or you start running marathons, like these are real world common things that happen all the time. My concern is that the systems won't be transparent enough so that patients will be able to know, here's what I still need to do myself versus what the system can handle and how much can it safely handle. That's the level of detail that I think we need to know for like those true everyday occurrences where, yeah, you still need to interact with the system and tell it, hey, I'm sick. I'm going to set a different term. Target, or I'm running a marathon. I'm going to set a different target or make adjusted adjustments to settings. So I think we have a ways to go, not only in terms of the interoperability and being able to choose, but also having the right level of detail to allow people to have the right expectations for what it can do, but also use the system to the best that it is capable of at that time.
0: Absolutely. And I, I guess I'm curious because this concept of a learning curve is really intriguing to me. And it it is one of the, I'm sure one of the big problems that the the industry has dealt with this. They've tried to get into this space. You mentioned that there are over a thousand people who are using or have used Open APS uh, in the four years since it's existed. That's a thousand out of you know millions of people around the world with diabetes. Right. What are the characteristics, if there are any, that you think make people likely candidates uh, for Open APS? What is it that that drives them to? first of all, adopt, and then secondly, to actually be successful in using the the OpenAPS system?
1: Well, it's not so much, I'll answer this question more broadly, because I think when people think of DIY, they think that all those thousands of people who are using the various DIY systems must be engineers and programmers and technically savvy. And the reality is a small fraction of them are and tended to be the early adopters say the first you know couple dozen of people but especially in the last 2 years the instructions the sophistication of the algorithm everything is to the point where anybody truly if they can operate email or operate facebook and can open up a web page to read the instructions and they know their diabetes and they've got the right devices they can build a DIY closed loop system. The So the characteristics I see are the frustrations of living with diabetes. And that can be mm-hmm. the frustration of worrying about sleep or worrying about school or worrying about, you know, preparing their body for pregnancy. Everybody has different reasons, but I would say probably the unifying characteristic is frustration with the status quo of the tools that they have, and they want to try with something different. And so I would say that's going to apply for people who choose a DIY system or a commercial system in the future, anywhere around the world. It's really going to be frustration with what they have and wanting to do better and wanting to experiment. And I think the more tools we have to show people, here's the difference in outcomes, here's the trade-offs in, you know, doing things manually. Like you have Like you have control, but at the same time, you have to do everything versus here's a hybrid system or here's a fully automated system Mm -hmm. and really helping people understand the differences between the activities you do versus the activities a system can do and the difference in outcomes that you can get. I think the more we show that data um, and that level of ability to people to customize truly what's important to them and their diabetes and their lifestyle, I think the better off everybody will be.
0: That completely makes sense. I, I guess I'm really curious, based on the fact that the algorithm has shown such great results, the, the OpenAPS system has shown such great results in so many people in so many different countries, what, what kind of interest have you seen from industry? How have people responded to the open source nature uh, of the work that you've done?
1: We've really seen a range in responses. There's companies who are like, well, we're working on our commercial product. You know, we don't endorse it. We don't encourage it. We don't think people should do it. At the other end of the spectrum, there are companies who have evaluated the open source code, ported it in, tested it, and said, hey, look, they're doing something even better than what we did in these areas. Let's use that. And that, to me, is the best way a company in the industry should be taking this, which is evaluate the results, see what's working well, see what's a you know, performing well better than what they've done so far and use it. Um, that's part of the reason why, in the early days, we decided to make this open source. It's got an MIT license, which means any company or any individual can use it for any reason for free. There's mm. no reason not to do that. And I'm hoping my prediction is that the companies who have evaluated and incorporated the best of the open source ideas and algorithm and usability features will be the ones who end up with the greatest market share once we have several of these competing on the market
0: yeah it's going to be amazing to see how that plays out uh, over the next few years i do think it's the start of a, a brave new world uh with these commercial pl- products becoming available um One of the things that I wanted to talk about is that you've been doing some interesting work uh, based on a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Opening Pathways project.
1: Yeah, so this actually both came out of my work with open APS, but is also not related to my work with open APS. But I had the benefit to be speaking at the Quantified Self Public Health Conference a couple years ago. And afterwards spoke with a couple of researchers who were like, ooh, you know, we want to study open APS. We want to do an outcome study and prove that what you're doing is safe. And I was like, like we've done that. That's not that's not a meaningful contribution. Like we've done that. We'll continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Um. And to their credit, the conversation really pivoted to well, what would be meaningful? Like, what could we do w- with resources that would help you? Because OpenAPS and all the people working in the open source diabetes community, we're unfunded. We're doing this in our spare free time to help others in the community. And so yeah. the question really became, if you could get resources, what would you do? And At that point, we had started doing some interesting data science work, and I realized that because we have built these devices that track data every five minutes, we also do a series of predictions and calculations every five minutes that is new and novel and that most commercial devices aren't doing or aren't displaying to researchers and to individuals. And so we had this amazingly rich data source that I really wanted to explore. At the same time, there are constantly people in the community who are like, I have this idea or I have this theory that I'd like to see if this is true across a broader group of population. So the proposal we put forth to RWGF was to actually first build a data science team to support individuals with diabetes in the community who had a question and wanted to do research with already collected data and to support them with tools or developing tools to help answer some of those questions with the idea of basically testing and saying, could this be a sustainable model in diabetes or elsewhere, whether industry or nonprofits want to support patients doing research and exploring these new areas of diseases by pairing up data scientists with patients who have questions. Mm-hmm. So that was really part one of the opening pathways project. But the bigger picture was how do we take what we've seen in open APS and in particular, the broader open source diabetes community? We've had a lot of success and a lot of opportunities. What are those elements of success? What were luck? What are repeatable and scalable that could translate to other communities and how can we help other patient communities? So Mm. that's really what opening pathways is about is a lot of times patients are out there developing these new pathways, but a lot of times if they don't get support or they don't hit the right momentum, nothing happens. And then so then a couple years later, somebody comes along and tries to recreate the same wheel. But what pathways exist and what pathways can we explore for patients? you know, who are doing open source work or are doing something new and novel that doesn't necessarily fit the traditional path of, you know, get a patent and create a company or create a nonprofit. Those are kind of the two common things that patients hear when they're doing something new and novel, whether it's an invention or research, Mm -hmm. that doesn't always work for everybody. And I don't think those should be the only pathways. So that's really where that work has evolved to think, ask those bigger questions about what other pathways could exist? What funding, what support um, do we need to develop to support those pathways? And what other opportunities can we provide to patients who have great ideas out there.
0: And I know that this is work in progress, but are there therapeutic areas that you think may have uh, you know close enough analog to the management of diabetes that they're likely candidates? or have there been particularly motivated patients that have come forward uh, to propose uh, expanding this work into different therapeutic areas?
1: Absolutely. I think actually there's an endless list of therapeutic areas that would work. I think most people think it's a short list because they think, okay, what like diabetes do we already know enough to have devices that collect data? Mm. But if you take a step backwards and think most diseases. There's a lot of opportunities around data tracking, collection, presenting the data to patients in a meaningful way that they can actually do something with it. When you think about the symptoms of cancer and various types of treatment, you think about cystic fibrosis, you think about asthma. There's so many areas where I think that this could be directly applied if you take the step back and think about, well, if we need to create the data, what devices or what methods do we have to either create or collect the data or display it in a way that's meaningful? Because to be honest, some of the best ideas that we've had have come out from us getting the same data that I had access to before, but presenting it to, my, to me in a real time or new or different way or with a slight different tweak and iteration on how we present the data. And I think that's where we should start with a lot of these disease areas is getting people the tools or the ideas or the skills to help build these tools to surface the data. But traditionally, a lot of research and a lot of funding goes towards designing data for a company because yeah. of their business model. And then maybe it's for clinicians. And then, oh, maybe here's like one scrap of data for the patient. But I think we really have to reverse that model on its head and think about how do we design data for the patient? What are the, and not every level of detail all the time, but what is kind of the pyramid of data display that we want to have? Here's the high level data people need at a glance. Here's the, you know, kind of retrospective weak view data. Here's the broader data of seeing bigger picture patterns and everything else. Mm. I think when we start doing that in partnership with patients who actually know their disease, they know the challenges and the number one problems they need to solve, that's really we're going to start seeing see more and more of these novel ideas and collaborations and solutions come out just like it did in the diabetes world.
0: Man, that is so exciting, Dana. And I think it's probably a great place to close this conversation, even though there are about a million directions we could go from here. Um, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing with us the work you're doing. It's, it's tremendously exciting.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for everybody who's interested in thinking bigger picture about different pathways and also different disease populations who could benefit from this idea of thinking.
0: Well, and that's where I, what I wanted to ask you. If people want to find more information about open APS or about opening pathways or other work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: So OpenAPS, you can go to openaps.org. If you want to find Opening Pathways, openingpathways.org. There's actually a series of blog posts where me and my team have been tracking kind of like our big picture conversations and thinking about the different pathways and also the dynamics of a patient being PI and working with some collaborators at a research institution. But also, if anybody wants to chat, the best way to get a hold of me on Twitter, so at Dana M. Lewis, and I'd love to chat with anybody anytime about these topics.
0: That sounds great. Thank you so much, Dana, and thank you to the listeners for being here. We will see you next time. Thanks, Greg. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at health, or send a direct message to at chimoose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a
1: Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.